pandemic recovery at risk. These next two weeks are crucial to our immunization campaign. As the variants take off, a new campaign to convince nearly a million more people to get the shot. A warning for those willing to defy wildfire evacuation orders. Even our seasoned firefighters are seeing behavior and conditions that we've never seen. A powerful message from those fighting on the front lines. And another heat wave that won't help. What to expect as temperatures crank up again. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. BC health officials are launching a new program targeting the nearly 1 million eligible British Columbians who have not yet received COVID 19 vaccine. Richard Zussman is live with the details of Vax for BC. And Richard, the data shows the vast majority of people still getting sick are unvaccinated. It sure does, Chris. And the good news is 81% of those eligible in the province have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. But there are still a lot of people who have not yet got the shot. And others may still have questions. It's called Vax for BC. For the next two weeks, the province pushing to get as many COVID-19 shots in arms as possible. There is more work to do if we need to protect each other, the people we're closest to, and of course, put this pandemic behind us. And this is the target. The 900,772 eligible people in BC not yet immunized, about 19% of the 12 plus population. In Northern Health, almost a third of the eligible population hasn't received a COVID shot, more than a quarter of those in Interior Health. The strategy consists of making shots more readily available, including drop-in events and vaccinators going to places like beaches and sporting events. Our focus in the next two weeks is to do something exceptionally positive. But those positive vibes may not last long. COVID-19 cases in BC are climbing, and it's almost entirely among those who are unvaccinated. We have to capture more people, especially in younger age groups, to get their first dose and then their second. The province wants to get the message across. Vaccines work. From June 15th to July 15th, 1,210 unvaccinated people got COVID, compared to just 68 fully vaccinated people. Same timeline, 137 unvaccinated people sent to hospital with COVID, just eight fully vaccinated people. And over that month, 15 unvaccinated deaths, compared to one from a fully vaccinated person. And if the vaccine push doesn't work, the province will be forced to react. If uh, there's transmission in a workplace, that workplace will have to close temporarily in that place. Um, there may be uh, an outbreak in uh, a long-term care home. We know uh, the measures that we have to take to prevent transmission and to stop outbreaks in long-term care. So, Richard, when people see the cases going up the way that they are, the big question many have is, will we see a return to some of those restrictions? What's the call there? Yeah, so I asked Dr. Bonnie Henry this question this afternoon or this morning, Chris, and what she says is don't expect to see the wide-scale province-wide restrictions that we saw as recently as March and April and May. But potentially, the province could put in place regional restrictions based on what they say with see with cases, but most importantly, what they see with immunizations. That's why the next two weeks, this big blitz is so crucial, Chris. No doubt. Okay, thanks very much, Richard. A little more insight into the numbers for us right now. Another day, another surge 
in those new COVID-19 cases. And once again, we're seeing most of them in the interior. We have 150 new cases and 783 active cases province-wide. 44 people are in hospital, 22 of them in intensive care. Thankfully, again, no new deaths to report. And when it comes to vaccinations, 80.1% of those 12 and older have had their first dose, as Richard mentioned. 62.3% have had both doses. Okay, Keith Baldry joins us now. And Keith, let's start with those numbers. 150 new infections. Mm -hmm. That's concerning, to say the least. To say the least, but it is really centered, as you mentioned, Chris, in the Interior Health Authority and primarily in the Okanagan. Of those 150 cases, 95 or 63 percent are in the Interior Health Authority. That number, that percentage has been increasing for well more than a week. What's going on? Basically, the Delta variant of concern, which is highly infectious, highly contagious, is about 75 percent of all the cases there. So that's driving the numbers up, including the social gatherings that are taking place now, primarily of people in their 20s and 30s who get COVID-19 more often than other age groups. In fact, of the 95 cases, 52 were of people in their 20s, 17 in their 30s. We're seeing a number of pubs and restaurants and bars closing in the Kelowna area as a result of the surging numbers, and the positivity rate is approaching 7%. It all adds up to those numbers continuing to be very strong and very high in the weeks ahead. The interior health numbers are going to be high for some time. No doubt about it. I just got back from Kelowna and, and mm -hmm. saw a lot of people just believing the pandemic was yeah. over in many ways. A lot of it's people not. taking precautions too, but, but other people not so much. Okay, back to the briefing with Dr. Bonnie Henry, and she faced some questions about whether vaccinations and those who mixed and matched will be recognized when it comes to travel abroad. Yeah. What was her response? Yeah, these questions are prompted by numerous reports internationally that companies, cruise lines, some uh, countries are reconsidering allowing people with mixed vaccines either aboard their ships or into their country. Uh, the graphic uh, you'll see here shows exactly our BC situation. Almost 400,000 people double-dosed with mixing vaccines. AstraZeneca, first dose, Moderna, second dose, 116,000 people. AstraZeneca, then Pfizer, 38,000, on and on. You see the, most, the biggest number there, Pfizer, first dose, Moderna, second dose, 201,000. It adds up to 392,000 people. That's a lot of people. And Dr. Bonnie Henry making the point today, there are a lot of people worldwide who got double doses of mixed vaccines, including pretty well everyone uh, in the UK and other European countries, and highly doubts that a place like the United States would prevent so many people from crossing the border into their country simply because you had two different types of vaccines. I have full confidence that the United States will be looking at the same things that we're looking at about the effectiveness of vaccine programs. And in the same way, they're not going to deny access to millions of people from the UK. They're not going to um, prevent people from Canada entering the US when they're ready to do that as well. Um, you know, we can't. Um, uh, we can't foreshadow what uh, other countries are going to do, but we can try and influence it, and we're working with Canada to do that. So travel, not a big issue right now, but the border will reopen in August, and we expect the rules to be much clearer then whether you can travel with mixed vaccines. I suspect, Dr. Henry's right, you will be able to travel. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way it turns out, too. All right, Keith, thanks very much. It's been a big talking point for months. Should businesses in B.C. require customers to provide proof of vaccination? It's an idea Dr. Bonnie Henry is throwing her support behind. But as Grace Key reports, the hospitality sector wants clarity on whether it will happen and who will enforce it. 
When France threatened its unvaccinated citizens with travel and restaurant restrictions, more than a million citizens signed up for an appointment the next day. BC's provincial health officer stopped short of a mandate, but is encouraging businesses to take the lead. We've had a couple of outbreaks um, in nightclubs where unvaccinated people. And, it, it, you know, if I was running a nightclub, I want to make sure that my staff are protected. And yes, we absolutely can say to come in here, you have to be immunized. There's been indoor settings um, where people are gathering and unvaccinated people introduce the virus. You've gotten vaccinated, you know, it's just a little paper card with someone writing on it. So how am I going to know if that's real or fake or not? Forcing folks to also check your vaccine uh, is going to be a real pushback because people consider that personal and confidential information. All eyes have been on Nashville North at the Calgary Stampede where 22,000 attendees were required to show proof of vaccination or undergo a rapid test before entry. I think in situations like that though you're talking about a massive venue with thousands of people gathered for a very specific event and that's a, a, a different scenario but that was also a business decision made by the organizers. The Surrey Board of Trade has been pushing for short-term national proof of immunization strategy adding Dr. Henry's comments are a step in the right direction. So we need to think differently about how to fully reopen our businesses and ensure that our frontline staff, all of our staff, um, all of our consumers are safe. And the only way to do that is through a provincial health order on a proof of immunization strategy that is across the board in Canada. But with businesses reluctant to police on their own and no suggestion of a provincial strategy, this seems like an unlikely route to get vaccination numbers up and exposure numbers down. Grace Key, Global News. A new strike vote could get in the way of Canada's plans to partially reopen the border to international travelers. More than 8,000 employees of the Canada Border Services Agency have voted in favor of going on strike. They could begin strike action as soon as August 6th, three days before the border is set to reopen to fully vaccinated U.S. residents. Many border workers would be deemed essential, but the union says strike action could slow down commercial traffic and international mail and parcel deliveries. The main issues are salaries, protection against harassment and discrimination, and a remote work policy. Turning now to the wildfire situation in this province. There are 252 fires burning right now, 14 sparked in the last two days. There are 38 fires of note, which means they're highly visible or pose a threat to public safety. 86 fires are considered out of control. Just over half are lightning-caused, 34% human-caused. The BC Wildfire Service has issued one of its strongest warnings yet to people who defy evacuation orders. Officials say not only are they getting in the way of firefighters, they could find themselves with no way out. Jennifer Palmer reports. The wildfire situation in BC is concerning, putting lives, people's homes and businesses at risk. Around the province, there are 18,000 properties on alert and 3,700 properties on evacuation order. But not everyone is leaving when they're supposed to. Over this past weekend, there's been several reported reports of individuals who are not heeding evacuation orders. <laughs> Earlier this month, Global News spoke with some BC residents who feel they know the land the best and can ward off the flames. My grandfather saved this place in the 1920s with a horse and cowhides. So I'm sure that we can do it with their support and the machinery we got. 
but the wildfire service has this message. You may have seen fire before, but the behavior and the traits that we're experiencing uh, over the last few years are something that's much more different than what we've seen in the past. One area some residents have been staying behind in is in the vicinity of the Sparks Lake Blaze. It's the largest wildfire in B.C. It's northwest of Kamloops. It's estimated at more than 58,000 hectares, making it just slightly bigger than Gabriola Island. Currently, 394 properties are on evacuation alert, 295 on evacuation order. It's a situation officials are seeing around the province and is putting everyone at risk. B.C. Wildfire Service operational efforts have been diverted including helicopters and aircraft, to support individuals who have been trapped behind the fire line. The BC Wildfire Service says for those who don't listen to an order, there's no guarantee they can help you if you need. Here are some of the consequences you might come up against. A lack of emergency responders to help you. Hospitals and clinics will be closed. Electricity, water and gas might not be available, including cell services. May find that their anticipated evacuation routes blocked or their access to information limited. And we've even seen in other jurisdictions numerous fatalities that have occurred when people chose to remain behind. The wildfire service says they're not interested in legal ramifications for those who don't follow an order. They just want people to be safe. Jennifer Palma, Global News. It looks like another round of blazing temperatures is on the way for southern B.C. And while they won't hit record-breaking levels like before, officials are still warning us to be careful. As Imadagahi reports the latest blast of hot weather comes as the coroner releases some sobering new numbers on the death toll during the June heat wave. It's the wailing siren to get ahead from it. It is not just a nice, polite uh, love tap. Take it from an expert in city planning that only some areas in Vancouver are designed to weather the extreme heat we saw late last month. I think this dome of trees is really naturally cooling the street and then also creating the opportunity for airflow to go through these respective homes. You have a lot of the kind of older homes here really developed around a particular temperate kind of climate. And since it's not realistic to plant trees in time for another possible event, expert reports are now calling on communities to get creative in the short term and potentially start using mobile cooling stations. We need to use uh, public buses uh, and deploy them into the neighborhoods where we know um, it does get uh, exorbitantly warmer and hotter as a result of urban heat islands, lack of tree canopies. Environment Canada is issuing a special weather statement of increasing temperature in Metro Vancouver. Though we're not going to see the same level of heat as we saw at the end of June, this is still a concerning event as we're approaching heat warning levels at which heat becomes a human concern to health. This comes on the heels of the early summer heat dome that proved deadly in many areas of the province. There was nothing left. There was no breathing, no pulse. According to the BC Coroner Service, during the seven-day period when the province was being blasted with extreme heat, 815 people died. A significant increase compared to the same period in years past. Anyone whose body becomes overheated can have serious medical outcomes from it. It's both the direct effects of heat uh, in terms of something like heat stroke, which can be life-threatening, and it's also the impacts on other chronic conditions. The provincial government was criticized for lack of warning last time around. It can be very challenging, and as we know, uh, heat uh, effects can creep up on people. But on Tuesday, Dr. Bonnie Henry took time in a wildfire update to speak about the dangers of the upcoming heat. Amadagahi, Global News.
Well, let's bring in one cool customer, senior meteorologist Christy Gordon, with more on uh, when this is really going to hit and where are the highest temperatures expected, Christy? Thanks, Chris. So it's going to start tomorrow, but really that's just the beginning of it. We're going to gradually warm up throughout the week with the three hottest days, likely Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Here's a look for the lower mainland region, what we're expecting. Areas away from the water from Metro Vancouver, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the hottest days up to 32 degrees. It will be cooler near the water, but that means right near the water. And the Fraser Valley could be 35, 36 degrees. And keep in mind, with a bit of humidity, it will feel even hotter than that. Areas like Camloops, Cash Creek, Ashcroft, those areas come Saturday could be approaching the 39 degree mark. Same for Asuyu. So we'll be tracking those areas very closely Sundays when we're all going to finally feel some relief. Back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. And just ahead, the controversy that's bedeviling the Delta Police Department. The chief's wife sprayed a woman with a hose who walked past their property. How it turned into a PR crisis that cost taxpayers thousands of dollars with one councillor demanding some answers. Next. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. Emotional testimony at the first day of hearings into the assault on the U.S. Capitol coming up on the news hour. And wildlife video that'll have you asking, sup, Grizzly? That's later, too. But right now, uh, Delta City Councilor is demanding more answers about what happened behind the scenes at the Delta PD while it responded to a scandal involving the chief's wife. Catherine Urquhart has the latest on what Councilor Lois Jackson is asking for. What really happened behind closed doors at Delta Police when the chief's wife was under investigation for assault? With so many questions unanswered, a notice of motion went before Delta Council Monday night. People have wondered just exactly what the truth is now. And I guess that's what I'm looking for. Councillor Lois Jackson says Delta residents are contacting her following a global news investigation. It revealed how pricey communications firm Navigator was paid more than $43,000 to coach Chief Neil Dubord, Deputy Chief Norm Lipinski, and members of the police board. This as a criminal investigation was ongoing into Lorraine Dubord for spraying Kieran Sadu with a hose. I'm alarmed that they received such detailed training for every aspect that that was happening at the time so not only for their media statements but also for their rcmp statements which seems a little bit unethical to me global news was given access to just some of the navigator invoices which were released seven months after a freedom of information request and an appeal to the information and privacy commissioner the rest remain a secret as Delta police refuse to release them. Councillor Jackson's notice of motion specifically asks that Delta police and the Delta police board respond to the public's questions that members of the department stated they were arm's length from proceedings when it appears they were not. They're, they're saying that this is a private issue and FOI can't let you know these things, etc., etc. And And I have some real trouble with that. Government has got to be transparent and it's got to be truthful. The Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner told Global News that it is aware of the recent reporting on this matter and are monitoring, saying confidentiality provisions of the Police Act generally prohibits us from discussing specific investigations. 
Jackson's notice of motion is also seeking information on the number of officers who have left the Delta Police Department in recent months. That and the crisis management coaching are expected on the agenda at Delta's next council meeting, August 9th. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The latest actions of anti-logging protesters near Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island seem to have gone a step too far for Indigenous leaders in the area. The Pachydat First Nation has issued a statement condemning the behavior of the activists, including, ironically, their destruction of several young cedar trees. Kylie Stanton reports. Yes, leaders of the Pachydat First Nation are calling the protesters disrespectful and antisocial. The self-described land defenders have been in their territory near the Ferry Creek watershed for nearly a year now, despite repeated calls to move on. Over the weekend, the RCMP said in a news release at least one protester was smoking in the dry and tinder forest. Eighteen trees had also been cut down, their trunks used to block the roadway. But according to the Pachidat, the list goes on. In a statement, it cites vandalism, unsanitary conditions, conversion of the forest into an open latrine, loss of Pachidat access to traditional sites, an increased wildfire hazard, and the disruption of lives. While the Pachidat First Nation did not return requests for comment today, the group known as the Rainforest Flying Squad says it has the support of Elder Bill Jones and will continue with its efforts. Well, we are not leaving now. Uh, we are... Uh hoping that we can enter into a phase of uh, conciliation and discussion with the Pachidat, which will lead to what we hope is a positive outcome. That is our intention. As for cutting down the young trees, the Rainforest Flying Squad said Monday it was justified, as they were needed to enhance the safety of the tripod structures. Now, a change of tune, saying it's a practice it doesn't support. We regret. That, that has happened. We do. But at the same time, we have to look at the scale of forest destruction <laughs> in relative terms. August 9th marks one year since the protesters descended on the area. In that time, the provincial government has deferred old growth logging across 2,000 hectares in the Ferry Creek and central Walbran areas. But protesters say it falls short of protection, and so they're willing to stay and provide it. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Still ahead, our series on Chinatown Ignored. We've really reached a tipping point where it's not acceptable. Overrun with crime and vandalism, how the community wants the city held accountable. Also tonight, veterans of the Korean War, marking the end of a conflict that many Canadians forget about. Crime and chaos have become so bad in Vancouver's historic Chinatown, the neighborhood is in danger of becoming a ghost town. Tonight in part two of Chinatown Unmasked, Kristen Robinson speaks to local business leaders who say that they're at the breaking point and feeling forgotten by city government. Crippled by crime and street disorder, Chinatown's for lease landscape littered with the scars of its COVID battle. It's saddening to see that uh, people treat it with such disrespect. Realtor and local BIA president Jordan Ng caught in this sign of the times. Commercial break-and-enters up by more than 60% in 2020. Mischief, including vandalism and graffiti, also increased by 20% year over year. All of it costing businesses. It's scaring people away from Chinatown. Councillor Pete Fry and colleague Sarah Kirby-Young 
work to gain a temporary reprieve on graffiti fines. We've actually asked the city to, you know, work with the BIAs where there's businesses that are really being prolifically targeted for nuisance tagging that we find a better solution than finding them or threatening them because obviously it's no fault of their own. Chinatown's business leaders say all they're asking for is equitable treatment. The cultural center pay close to 100000 a year for the property tax in lieu of rent and notice to the city. And uh, we actually got pretty much no service in return. It's easy to ignore us and I think we've really reached a tipping point where it's not acceptable. Do you think Chinatown is ignored by the city? You know, I'm really sympathetic for the merchants there. The BIA, which met with the mayor over safety and cleanliness concerns in 2019, wants a consistent response. Remember Chinatown and remember your commitment. Kennedy Stewart says council has committed $50,000 for general graffiti and garbage removal in Chinatown. The city also has more cleansing eyes on the street. Scrubbing sidewalks with scrutiny only the Granville Strip has seen before. The sanitation boost brings more staff and more frequent flushing and sweeping to the area. Good to see you guys. The VPD has also stepped up patrols since a community policing center opened. We're throwing lots at Chinatown. We know it's not enough at this point, uh, so we'll be uh, increasing our efforts as we move along. Chinatown, as we know it, will disappear if we do not get the support from all levels of government. Area MP Jenny Kwan wrote the finance minister one year ago, calling for a COVID cash lifeline for the National Historic Site. Federally owned Granville Island received $17 million in emergency relief funding in 2020, with another $22 million earmarked this year. I'd like to ask the government, what is the difference between Granville Island and that of Chinatown? Are we less important? We asked Christian Freeland why Chinatown didn't get the same cash. Uh, well, thank you for the question. No clear answer. The minister instead praised the federal wage and rent subsidies. I've had personal uh, testimonials about the extent to which our business support programs have been helpful, including very much for Vancouver's Chinatown. After this video hit YouTube in May, Chinatown got some attention. The community hopes this work will continue, a fresh start for the historic neighborhood that may be battered and bruised, but advocates say won't be crushed. We mustn't give up because Chinatown is worth the fight. Kristen Robinson, Global News. And tomorrow in our third and final installment of Chinatown Unmasked, we'll look at the future and how the community is coming together to create an economic development strategy to bring people back. A solemn ceremony in Burnaby Central Park marking the 68th anniversary of the Korean War Armistice. The peace treaty ended the war between Soviet-backed communists in the north and American-backed democratic government in the south, but it left the two Koreas divided. More than 26,000 Canadians volunteered to serve during the three-year conflict. 516 of them never came home, making it the third deadliest war in Canadian military history. Veterans on hand today reflected on their service. When we look back at our service, and I can't speak for those who sacrificed, but for those who served, I think it was worth the effort, the heat, 
the mud, the rain, monsoons, bugs, everything else, but it was worth it. Similar events were held across Canada, including at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. Up ahead, finding answers in the U.S. Capitol riot. As I was swarmed by a violent mob, they ripped off my badge. Powerful testimony at the first day of hearings. Also tonight, the risk factors that will make it impossible to meet construction deadlines at the Big Bar Landslide site and what that means for salmon. Busy day on the Lionsgate Bridge. Southbound is slow from all the merge points in both North and West Vancouver. Currently at one lane each. I think they're switching them over. Maybe, hopefully, southbound to relieve the backup. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $15 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. In Global One, I'm Tim May. Wildfires, floods, and falling debris have seriously delayed construction of a permanent fishway at the site of the Big Bar landslide. Crews at the Fraser River Work Camp are back after being forced out last week for the second time by the McKay Creek fire burning nearby. But three other wildfires in the area are impacting transportation routes. Hot temperatures, flooding and falling rocks have halted work as well. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans says completing the $176 million fishway by May 2022 is no longer going to be possible and options for moving forward are being reviewed. In the meantime, officials say salmon are using the nature-like temporary fishway put in place with 79,000 sockeye and chinook detected upstream of Big Bar this year. It's been more than six months since rioters crashed the U.S. Capitol building attempting to stop the certification of Joe Biden's presidential victory. Hearings into the origin of the assault began today with four officers giving emotional testimony about the day they were attacked. Global's Reggie Cicchini reports. I was electrocuted again and again and again. Officer Michael Fanone is one of the hundreds who fought back against a violent mob egged on by lies, suffering a heart attack and traumatic brain injury. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. Do you swear I affirmed? Fanone was one of four officers testifying at the first high-profile hearing into the assault at the Capitol and highlights how Donald Trump's false claims of fraud fueled the fire. We need to understand how and why the big lie fested. We need to know minute by minute how January 6th unfolded. Like most things in Washington, the political divide is evident. Only two Republicans are on the committee. We must act with honor and duty and in the interest of our nation. Both were appointed by the Democratic Speaker after their party's leader withdrew all nominees when two were rejected for pushing the election lie. I could have lost my life that day. As police walked through their first-hand accounts and video from the day opened old wounds, a parallel Republican event was held to delegitimize the investigation and cast doubt on their colleagues. Those Pelosi Republicans aren't interested in the truth. Republicans initially acknowledged the attack, and not participating in this event provides an out to call any findings political. It adopts a strategy of obstruction and denial. If you want the true answers, do not be afraid of the questions that will get asked. Many in my party have treated this as just another partisan fight. It's unclear how long the hearings will last, but could spill into the 2022 election season. 
And the U.S. Justice Department has ruled that former Trump administration officials can testify. But while Democrats have threatened subpoenas, it's unclear who would be targeted and if that could include Donald Trump. The officers who testified on Tuesday want the investigation to look into who coordinated the attack and if lawmakers were involved. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. In health matters tonight, while cases of COVID-19 rise in B.C., Canada's top doctor says a similar trend is being reported across the country. In a statement, Dr. Teresa Tam says today's seven-day average of new cases is 539. That's up 36 percent from the week prior. Dr. Tam says the majority of new cases are variants of concern, and most of the people getting infected are unvaccinated. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying earlier today that Canada now has enough doses to fully vaccinate all eligible residents. Still to come on the news hour, the good fellas of Linwood. I love it. You know, they got good hearts. The duo collecting cans for charity and finding some friends along the way. And in sports, welcome home to the Whitecaps. The buzz at practice with a match at BC Place coming up. Well, you might call him Paddington Paddler, a grizzly bear caught on camera trying to paddleboard on Lower Kananaskis Lake near Calgary. We're told the bear stood on the paddleboard on the shore and then pushed it out into the water. Paddington Paddler spent about four minutes trying to stand up on the board before finally giving up and leaving it behind. That's kind of how stand-up paddleboarding went for me the first time, too. All right, let's bring in Christy now and a look at that hot weather coming down for us. Thanks, Chris. I wanted to quickly mention, you know, I showed you the temperatures earlier with the heat reaching in the interior of those high 30s. Now, one thing that could change that would be the smoke. So in areas where we're going to see widespread smoke, we may likely see those temperatures come down a bit. So that will be the variable that we'll be tracking over the next little while. Now, we officially broke a record at YVR today, 42 days with no rain at all. Now, Environment Canada doesn't track it like that. They talk about no measurable rain, meaning that if there was a trace they would still add it in these days. So officially from Environment Canada, we're tied at third. But when you really talk about no rain, not a trace at all, uh, we broke a record today with 42 days. But we are going to see a change. Come Sunday, there's a chance of some moisture in through the interior regions. You can see that flow from the south. So we'll be tracking that closely. Stay tuned, still days away. But yes, some moisture is potential. Smoke forecast for tomorrow showing it's shifting off into Alberta. Clear skies for uh, the south coast region. But as we start to see that flow from the south late in the weekend that's when we could start to see some smoke but not from the interior from the smoke in the the, the fires in california you can see the cloud cover i put in those icons it really is just widespread smoke i'm just trying to indicate that you won't likely see much sun whereas metro vancouver south coast will see sun until sunday when at that point we could start to see a little bit of smoke tonight central windows weather window from the sky sarah mckay taking this as she was um traveling back from uh, Ontario to BC and that's of course looking out over the fires. Oh, let's hope we don't see more of that. Okay, thanks very much Christy. Squire's here with a look ahead to sports. Squire, good to see you again. Yes, good to see you too. Welcome back. Um, okay, so in less than a calendar year, Braden Holtby and Nate Schmidt became Canucks and then they became ex-Canucks. Schmidt was traded this afternoon to the Winnipeg Jets while his old buddy Braden Holtby had his contract bought out. It gives the Canucks more money to work with now on the players they want to keep. 
All right, we'll check in with you a little later, too. Also tonight, the heartwarming story of John and Sam, the dynamic duo collecting cans for charity. As I try to hit my mark, one guy who never misses his. Oh, Fire. you're so kind, but uh, I miss a plenty. Uh, remember that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza thought doing the opposite would make his life better? The Canucks have followed the same mantra. Last year, they failed to get Oliver Ekman Larson in a trade with Arizona. This year, they did get him. They signed Braden Holpe to a contract. Today, they bought him out of that contract. They also bought out Jake Vertanen after signing him last year. And they traded Nate Schmidt to Winnipeg for a third-round draft choice. And a third-rounder is what Vancouver gave Vegas for Schmidt last year. Just do the opposite, and maybe you'll make the playoffs. That seems to be the thinking. How about um, not making bad signings in the first place? That might help. Anyway, let's go through all of this. First off, buying out Braden Holpe, who was to make $4.3 million this season, gave the uh, Canucks some big savings this season. They only owe half a million on the cap this year for the buyout, but next year they'll owe 1.9 against the cap because of the buyout. Now, Nate Schmidt. Now, there was rumors that he was going to be traded yesterday to Winnipeg, and he didn't want to go there, but apparently he likes Winnipeg now. So he's a Jet, and the uh, third-round draft pick that Vancouver gave up for him last year comes back, but of course it's Winnipeg's draft pick. Okay. Part of Holtby and Schmidt's now-departed salaries were used earlier today to sign Connor Garland to a five-year contract worth $4.95 million per year. That's what most people thought he would get somewhere around $5 million. He, of course, was acquired by the Canucks last Friday from Arizona. That's not a bad contract for him. Now, what does Jim Benning have to do next? He has about $26 million to play with, and free agency starts tomorrow. He must sign Pedersen and Hughes and Jason Dickinson, who he brought in from Dallas. He now has to find a backup goalie, one that is cheaper. You know what he should do is call Roberto Luongo. Right. They're paying him $3 million anyway. Maybe he'd like to come out of retirement and play backup to uh, Thatcher Demko and also find a cheaper defenseman on the right side. That would help as well. Alex Ovechkin got another big deal despite being 35 years old, but Ovechkin could have got anything he wanted from the Caps. He wasn't going anywhere. Five more years at $9.5 million a season. Despite playing through lockouts and shortened seasons, he is only 164 goals behind the all-time leader Wayne Gretzky, and the Caps don't want him to break that record with a different uniform on. And how about this? Right after he wins the Vezina as the best goalie last season, Vegas trades Marc-Andre Fleury to Chicago for basically nothing. Mikhail Hakarainen is a warm body. He's not a prospect. This gets Fleury's $7 million salary off the books in Vegas. Now, they didn't tell him. He learned about it through Twitter. He doesn't know if he wants to play for Chicago. He might just retire instead. All right, the Vancouver Whitecaps got to train on their own field today. No more being a guest of Salt Lake City. And next month, they'll have actual home games at BC Place Stadium as well. All that was missing from the Vancouver Whitecaps' first training session out at their UBC facility was a massive home sweet home mat on the pitch. I'm so happy. That's the only way I can describe it. I'm so happy to be back. Um, I miss Vancouver so much. Just walking around and being in my own place again, being back at the training facility just feels right. It's time to come home and I'm so happy to be home. Tybert's feelings are shared by every member of the Whitecaps. 
because he'd have to flip back more than a few pages on the calendar. The last time we saw the Caps training out at UBC, early March to be exact. Oh, amazing to be home. I mean, what a what a bizarre four months or so, you know, on the roads and um, playing home games in Salt Lake and training out of their stadium. We have a group of guys who never stepped foot in Vancouver until yesterday. So for them now to have the opportunity, especially in the summer, to, to get to know the city a little bit, their new home, um, everybody just came in with a, you know, with a huge buzz, a huge enthusiasm this morning. And um, yeah, we're excited. Caicedo trying to stay on side. There's the servers and Caicedo! Ironically, the Whitecaps are playing their best soccer of the season on the road. They've picked up points in four of their last five matches and are coming off an impressive 2-2 draw against LAFC last weekend. Saturday, they'll play their final home game in Utah before welcoming fans back to BC Place August 21st. I think we would have had minimum 20 points instead of 14 if the schedule was normal and we would be home. Uh, because we feel it when we play against other teams. You know, we have a lot of experience of playing uh, on the road. I said it. I, I know that when we look at the MLS app, Vancouver plays home against Salt Lake, but that's a lie, right? We The reality is that we played 15 games on the road. That's Delta's Kelsey Harshman. This is last night's bronze medal game against Mexico, and this is the go-ahead sack fly that put Canada up 3-2. There are seven BC players on this team, including Danielle Laurie, who finished things off right here for a bronze medal. First ever medal in softball. And if you look at the medal standings right now, we are in ninth place. Japan has the most gold with 10. And our women have all our medals so far. So proud of those athletes. All right, thanks very much, Squire. A can-do attitude for a couple of seniors raising money for charity. That's next. This is BC with Jay Durant, brought to you in part by Fortis BC, BC's energy solutions provider. For several years now, two seniors at the Linwood Retirement Residence in Chilliwack have spent their morning walks searching for empty cans and bottles to raise money for charity. The community has been catching on to what they're doing, and now more and more neighbors are starting to rally around them. Jay Durant has their story. It's a cool day today. Just before 8 a.m., and John and San are out the door again. Did you have a good sleep that time? This is a true friendship that formed late in life. How are you doing, Sam? Are you keeping up? Every morning, they're out collecting cans and bottles for charity. This year, they're donating to Children's Hospital. I was saving all what I had, eh? I love it. You know, they got good hearts. Now I've got to walk for my health. I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. John suffered a stroke in 2017. He's 86 now, and these walks keep him fit. I feel good today. And Sand's still going strong at 84, despite double hip replacement surgery. Morning. A potential windfall for another day after meeting a new neighbor. Well, if I tell everybody on Stanley what you're doing, I'll have even a bigger haul for you. But now it's time to get to work. Nothing for Sand so far. Shut out on some of the early stops. No, no, no good. John can tell you too that we get one or two cans, you know, and make the whole round, you know. But John's on a bit of a hot streak. Here's some. We're collecting them for Children's Hospital. And just as their basket is getting full, they hit the jackpot. Thank you. 
there's a lot of empty Budweiser cans in there. Those aren't mine. <laughs> I, I take responsibility for the Alexander Keith ones, <laughs> the four he just got. It turned out to be a really good day. Their friends at Linwood will be impressed. It's really bonded, I think, a lot of the folks in the building as well. You know, they, like, they're cheering for them, right? They usually raise about $1,000 a year, but they're about to break the record and it's only July. Linwood has set up an account called the Goodfellas for people to put their returns onto John and Sands' totals, adding just a little bit more for Children's Hospital. Well, it makes me feel I'm useful. Just because you're old, you, you can do something. But that makes me feel good. Jay Durant, Global News. Oh, glad those guys are out there. All right, if you have an idea for Jay, email him at thisisbc at globalnews.ca and be sure to tune in for the half hour of This Is BC special airing this weekend on BC One. Squire, we just got to find out, and Christy, we just got to find out who's responsible for all those Budweiser cans. <laughs> I wonder if the guy was watching. Uh, okay, last word on weather before we go, Christy. Sure. So it's going to get hot, not only across the coast, but in the interior, certainly. Uh, the only thing that would change that it would be how much smoke an area is seen or it will see because that will, of course, reduce the amount of sunlight to warm things up. But, uh, yes, yeah, sunshine and heat for the next several days across southern B.C., that's for sure. All right. A lot of people heading to the to the water, I'm sure. It's nice to be back with you guys after a, a 10-day vacation. And mm -hmm. uh, hope everybody's back. Yeah, thanks, buddy. I ho hope everybody's safe out there. Stay cool as the heat cranks up again, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.